Today, we're going to explore the Enneagram. The Enneagram is coming into its own and is being used as an aid in personality development and in spiritual discovery. I have three guests. Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile have co-authored The Road Back to You, an Enneagram journey to self-discovery. Enneagram to me is the most efficient tool that I know for helping people get into conversation with the mystery of their own lives. I also speak with Christopher Heritz, author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Not looking simply at personality, but at patterns, at energy, at, at the movement of a soul towards um, reunion or, or, or communion with, with the divine. It's time for Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. I've been noticing a great deal of interest in the Enneagram. What is it, and how is it helpful? My three guests today are passionate about the Enneagram as a tool for personal and spiritual growth. Christopher Heritz is the author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Um, I, like I said, I, I, I don't know a, a better support for the contemplative journey than, than the Enneagram. Along similar themes, I speak with Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile, who are the co-authors of The Road Back to You, an Enneagram journey to self-discovery. And once people understand that other people are not looking at what they're looking at and they're not using the same information to decide how to move forward, there's an automatic component of compassion for people who are different than we are and curiosity about learning about what they see instead of discounting how other people respond to life. Two books to get you started on exploring the Enneagram. Ian Morgan Cron is a best-selling author, Enneagram teacher, nationally recognized speaker, psychotherapist, and Episcopal priest. His books include the novel Chasing Francis and spiritual memoir Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and me. Ian draws on an array of disciplines from psychology to the arts, Christian spirituality to theology, to help people enter more deeply into conversation with God and the mystery of their own lives. Suzanne Stabile is an internationally recognized Enneagram master. Suzanne has conducted over 500 Enneagram workshops over the past 25 years. She's spoken to college audiences and churches, and she teaches regularly in the Baylor Healthcare System in Dallas, Texas. Both Ian and Suzanne are with me via Skype, and we discuss their book, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, delighted. Thank you. Well, tell me about uh, the Enneagram. Uh, what is it, and, and where did it originate? The Enneagram uh, has uh, sort of peculiar origins. It is a personality typology system that uh, posits that there are nine core personality styles, one of which each of us adopt in childhood um, for a host of reasons. One being for coping strategies, uh, ways of dealing with the inevitable injuries and losses of childhood that we, we all experience, and to protect uh, our basic goodness with which we, we come into the world. Uh, these ways of operating in the world, uh, these personality styles, work really, really well uh, when we're little kids to help us get through and survive. Uh, unfortunately, we, we don't entirely shed them, you know, uh, after the threats of childhood are gone. And uh, we carry them with us into adulthood, at which point that which helped us survive as kids becomes a liability for us as adults. And what the Enneagram does 
is it helps us identify which of those narratives, those uh, stories, those personality styles we adopted, and helps us, you know, disidentify with those aspects of our personality that uh, are self-defeating and self-limiting for us as adults that our true basic goodness might again emerge. So uh, is this like uh, the Myers-Briggs type indicator? No, it's uh, way better. (laughs) Better. Um, Yes, and I I think it's better because the, the wonder of the Enneagram is that the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And you can do something about what you learn about yourself using the wisdom of the Enneagram so that you can actually live a more spiritually mature life and you can operate from a healthier space. Because in one movement, the Enneagram shows you where your weakness is and shows you what to do to strengthen it. You'd mentioned uh, the wisdom of the Enneagram and you used the word spiritual. Uh, this isn't uh, necessarily a scientific approach to psychology, is it? Let me just say a few things about psychometrics as a therapist. And whenever you're talking about personality theory, first of all, it's a highly contentious field. You've got many, many different schools of thought about it. There's no single unified uh, theory of personality that, that's out there. That's number one. Okay. Number, number two, uh, typologies uh, are notoriously difficult to pin down, in part because any self-assessment, for example, test um, is limited by uh, the test taker's, for example, level of self-awareness, right? If, you, if you're not a very self-aware person, you really can't, you know, uh, answer a test with a high degree of reliability. Uh, it may be limited by the test taker's willingness to be honest, um, and so forth and, and so on. I, I mention this because people tend in the world of psychology to associate personality with personality assessments, and I'm always very careful to say up front, though I think they can be a helpful doorway into the conversation about personality, they can in no way be determinative or definitive in what results that they produce. So you have to take them with a, with a grain of salt. Um, unlike the MBTI or the MMPI or all these other uh, systems, um, the Enneagram is a fluid and dynamic system that takes into account that the, the human personality is dynamic and not static. That's why I prefer it. Um, and just like the MBTI and just like the MMPI, um, there's a margin of error. Uh, so uh, I say that only because people say, oh, well, there's, there's not a lot of research into the Enneagram's validity or reliability. And I can assure you that, especially with the Myers-Briggs, uh, in fact, the scientific community kind of rolls its eyes at the Myers-Briggs because there's so little evidence of it being particularly valid or as a reliable instrument of personality measurement. So it's a very squishy world, all to say. And so the question is, not so much is it accurate, uh, you know, in, in the scientific sense, but is it useful? And I think the Enneagram is very useful. Whether or not it's objective, uh, that can be debated perhaps, but there, there's a subjective value to enable one to become more self-aware. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. So how have the two of you in your professional lives uh, used this Enneagram in your counseling or in your teaching to help people? I primarily teach. And I teach a lot about the Enneagram, and I work a lot with um, hospital employees and chaplains and church staffs trying to help people recognize the differences in how we see. So the reality is there are nine ways of seeing. And we look at something and we think we all see it the same way, and then we think we process what we see the same way. And once people understand that other people are not looking at what they're looking at, and they're not using the same information to decide how to move forward. There's an automatic um, component of compassion for people who are different than we are and curiosity about learning about what they see instead of discounting how other people respond to life. 
you know, I think in my professional life as a priest and as a, uh, a therapist, Enneagram to me is the most efficient tool that I know for helping people get into conversation with the mystery of their own lives. And uh, unlike any other tool I know of, I, it, I'm not kidding when I say it, it probably cuts off six months to a year of my having to tease out information from somebody if I just know roughly where they are on the Enneagram. I mean, I just, it, it just saves me a tremendous amount of time. And it gives me a tool and a language with them uh, that uh, we can share a vernacular, right, about uh, who they are. So I, I, I just use it constantly. Now, when you say who they are or what they are on the Enneagram, really, it's, it's, isn't this an aspect of people have to discover this for themselves? I mean, isn't this a tool to bring out yourself? I mean, it's like interpreting somebody's dreams. You really have to do it yourself, don't you? Absolutely. We're, uh, we don't assign numbers to people. And when people ask us what their number is, we say, you know, you got to figure that out. But once you begin to hear narrative style teaching about the Enneagram, you kind of find yourself. But when you find yourself, then I think you need a spiritual guide, a, a spiritual mentor, a spiritual director or a therapist or both in order to work through how you're going to be healthier around that way of seeing in the world and, and more, um, more capable of good relationships around how the people see things from a different perspective. Just the last thing that we want to do is, is encourage people to delete their personality. Uh, that's not possible. It's not even a good idea if you, if you could. I mean, we want people to be as healthy in their personality as possible. And the way that you do that is by recognizing, uh, you know, when you're not healthy and then being able to uh, kind of disentangle yourself from those old patterns and behaviors and ways of seeing the world and then being able to make different, more healthy choices in the moment about how you're going to live your life in a way that aligns with your true self and your own values. And to Suzanne's point, you need a community to do that. We live in and learn about ourselves in relationship. And so I do think we need spiritual directors and dear friends or communities of people who can mirror back to us and say, hey, I think you're at your best right now or I don't. Well, let's take uh, one of the traits or, or types or numbers and, and tease it out a little bit more. I'm speaking with Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile. They are the authors of The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. Let's take, for example, uh, number nine, uh, The Peacemaker. Now, what you talk about in your book, there's uh, a healthy aspect, um, um, an average, and then an unhealthy. How, how would uh, the... If you found yourself to be a peacemaker on the scale, what would be a healthy peacemaker and an unhealthy one and, and perhaps average? We can both speak to that, but I'll start. We're both married to nines, so we, we have a lot to say about this, <laughs> okay. actually. Um, I, I would say that a key element to understanding nines is that they see two sides to everything. So earlier I said the best part of you is also the worst part of you. So the best part of nines is seeing two sides to everything, but that's the worst part. And I would also say that nines, um, more than anything in average space, want to avoid conflict. So they'll go out of their way to be sure that they're not doing anything that would cause conflict or that would allow something from outside of themselves to steal their peace. So they might be avoiding Avoid or accommodate conflict. They um, they do. Their passion is sloth, and it's really defined in the Enneagram as an unwillingness to engage with life with full vitality. So nines really hold back and find safety in being indecisive and in not confronting sometimes things that need to be confronted. Okay, so that's a nine, and that's kind of what you would say the uh, the negative part. So, what is the positive part? What's a healthy nine? How how is this turned into a gift? Yeah, well, um, I I love nines, and and by the way, I love every number when they're healthy. You know, I mean, when people are healthy, uh, 
I mean, they just we each bring a, a, a marvelous gift to the the banquet of life. When nines are healthy, they can actually leverage this uh, proclivity to merging with other people, which is something they do. They they can oftentimes uh, adopt the preferences, opinions. Uh, the priorities, the life agendas of other people, setting their own aside for fear that by asserting themselves, it will lead to a disconnection in relationships. So they merge uh, with another, usually more aggressive type. Now, when they're healthy, uh, spiritually speaking, what they can do is uh, kind of move into a space spiritually where they merge more with God. And, And what I mean by merge in this sense is is they discover union. And union means that you maintain a sense of your own identity, right? You, you're an individuated human being who has chosen uh, to uh, move into a unitive knowledge of, of God. It's, it's really phenomenal. I think healthy nines actually have a spiritual leg up on the rest of us. They're, they're natural contemplatives and Suzanne and I always laugh. We don't know if he's a nine because he's the Dalai Lama or he's a Dalai Lama because he's a nine, but we're pretty sure the Dalai Lama is a nine. <laughs> really, the Dalai Lama would be a nine. So the idea of making peace, having peace within oneself, um, being uh, actually uh, a non-anxious presence, those types of uh, things we might associate with uh, with a healthy peacemaker? Exactly. Yes. That's exactly right. Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile have been my guests on Progressive Spirit. They're the authors of The Road Back to You, an Enneagram journey to self-discovery. Thank you both for being with me and for this book. Thanks for having us. Yes, indeed. Thanks for having us. After 20 years of grassroots work in some of the world's poorest slums, red light areas, and places of intense human suffering, Felina and Chris Huritz have reflected on what it takes for communities to maintain a vibrant, growing spirituality in the face of human need by integrating faith-filled spiritual practice with modern daily life and service. Originally from Omaha, Nebraska, Chris studied at Asbury University in Kentucky before moving to India where he was mentored by Mother Teresa for three years. And while living in India, he helped launch South Asia's first pediatric AIDS care home creating a safe haven for children impacted by the global pandemic. A forerunner in the New Friar movement, Chris and his wife, uh, Felina, have served with the Word Made Flesh community for nearly 20 years, working for women and children victimized by human traffickers in the commercial sex industry. And this has taken Chris to over 70 countries, working among the most vulnerable of the world's poor. In 2012, Felina and Chris launched Gravity, a center for contemplative activism. It was in the slums of Cambodia that Chris was introduced to the Enneagram. And since then, he's trained under Enneagram masters such as Father Richard Rohr, Russ Hudson, Marion Gilbert, and Helen Palmer. He teaches the Enneagram in workshops and retreats around the world and is an International Enneagram Association accredited professional. He's with me via Skype to talk about his book, The Sacred Enneagram. Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Welcome, Chris, to Progressive Spirit. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to, great to connect here. I, tell me first about, about your website and your work there. You have a lot going on at gravitycenter.com. Sure. So for, for 20 years, um, my wife and I were part of an international humanitarian organization that focused primarily on, on, on women and kids. Um, a lot of them, folks who had been trafficked into the commercial sex industry, um, many of them, um, youth who lived on, on, on the streets or in sewers or in slums, in refugee camps, um, and then, of course, a lot of families impacted by, by the global AIDS pandemic. And after uh, 20 years of that work, it caught up to me. I was tired. I was worn out. I was, I was teetering on the edge of burnout and had made some really, really terrible decisions that hurt myself, hurt my, my wife, uh, hurt my friends and my community. So peeled off, caught my breath, sort of hit the hard reset. And about five years ago, my wife and I launched a little center for contemplative activism. It's called Gravity. And, and really, we're just trying to help people who want to help people. We uh, work with humanitarians, practitioners, activists. We work with a lot of refugees, human trafficking survivors. And, and essentially what we're doing is we're, we're, we're reintroducing the historic Christian contemplative tradition to folks who've been disconnected from it or orphaned because of it or, or, or sort of cut off within their own faith communities. 
the Center for Contemplative Activism. And that makes a lot of sense because activism can be quick to uh, burn ourselves out because you look at the problems and they're huge and we face them and we internalize them and uh, we are overwhelmed by them. So you really need a strong uh, sense of self uh, or sense of focus in order to engage in activism, don't you? Sure. And, and, you, and you have to realize that this is all on a continuum, that if we, we simply just give ourselves to, to worshiping communities that don't have the sort of embodiment of, of the fruit of that and, and, and healing the world and, and building into the new we that we all want to become part of, then you have to wonder about the fruit of the prayer. But you simply also cannot be an activist-driven person or organization or community without rooting and anchoring that in a deep contemplative spirituality. For, for, for the obvious reasons, but of course for accountability, for, for awakening, um, for centeredness, and, and really because even our best intentions in the world, even our, our activist efforts, um, apart from really sin, surrendering and, and, and submitting and consenting those to the divine, are, are, are sometimes missed opportunities at best. So tell me uh, your story. You talked about, uh, you kind of hit a crisis point. Tell me how the Enneagram played into your self-finding. Sure. So man, the Enneagram has just been um, one of the greatest supports in my own spiritual journey over the last almost almost 20 years. Um, like you had mentioned in the introduction, uh, a friend of mine had taught this to me in the slums of, of Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, I, I, I resisted it a little bit. I, I didn't want to be reduced to a, a type. I didn't want to be controlled by, by some of these caricatures. Um, but you know, the, the longer you, you stick with the Enneagram, the, the longer you actually work with it, the longer and, and, and the more compassionate you are with yourself and, and moving this beyond caricature to really sort of paths back to your true self, paths back to God, it changed everything. And it changed everything first um, on, on sort of a superficial level in our community because it began to help us see each other, understand each other, how to, how to, how to sort of work together. But, um, man, over these past five, five years, it's just been, um, it's just been a lifesaver. It's really, it's really sort of helped me learn to self-observe. And, and, and I say this a lot, that if you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. And, and so what I'm able to see, what I'm willing to see, what I'm willing to sort of bring out of the shadows, um, forward, um, because of what the Enneagram can expose us to really then becomes, some of the material that I, I bring back into my contemplative practice and my, my inner work and, and, and my, spiritual, my spiritual work. So, so the focus here is the, uh, you call, the book is titled The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth, is using the Enneagram as a tool. Uh, I, I don't know if this metaphor is correct, but I was thinking of the Buddhist one. Uh, you have a boat that passes the, uh, goes across the water, and when you get across the water, you don't need the boat anymore. There, there's a sense in which the Enneagram is a tool, because I, I read in your book, that we can make it superficial, that we can make it, oh, I'm a nine and a nine is this or whatever. And uh, really, it's more opening um, kind of almost a Buddhist koan or, or a parable to open us to a deeper sense that's beyond even the types themselves. Am, am I close? Yeah, I mean, so so here's the thing. Um, in, in 2017, most of us are, are familiar with what is technically referred to as the Enneagram of personality. Uh -huh. and, and this is... Some of the work that um, uh, a Gestalt um, therapist, a Chilean man by the name of Claudio Naranjo did in the, in the early 1970s, building off of this teaching that um, a Bolivian wisdom teacher by the name of Oscar Ichazo brought forward. When Oscar Ichazo brought this forward, he actually had, had, had said that he was made aware of 108 what he called Enneagons. And these 108 Enneagons came to him in a in a vision. He was um, sort of in a, a seven-day divine coma. Well, what, what Ichazo was doing with those Enneagons was, was actually working with them towards enlightenment. And, and he sort of calls enlightenment the, the clarification of consciousness. Um, so what Claudio Naranjo did was, was begin to build psychological constructs around them. So if you're, you're just working with the Enneagram of personality, which is, is, is the most popular use of it in, in 2017, then yes, this simply can be a, 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 a vessel like a boat from A to B. Um, but I actually think it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more sort of, um, there's, there's more depth to it than simply the Enneagram of personality. And, and so this is where 
you even reach a little bit further back, and, and 101 years ago, this, this Turkish-Armenian mystic by the name of George Gurdjieff actually introduced the Enneagram of process, or the process Enneagram. And the process Enneagram, I think, is, is really where um, a lot of the, the, the most profound work takes place here. This is really getting into your essence. This is not looking simply at personality, but at patterns, at energy, at, at, at the movement of a soul towards um, reunion or, or, or communion with, with the divine. After the break, I continue my conversation with Christopher Huritz, author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. The Enneagram is the focus of today's show. Earlier, I spoke with Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile, co-authors of The Road Back to You an Enneagram journey to self-discovery. I'm speaking now with Christopher Huritz, author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Nine personality types in which they are certainly very early in childhood, if not innate. Is that right? Can you tell me just a little bit about the basics of the Enneagram, and then I want to go further in, into the, the why of it. Sure. So, so, so the Enneagram of personality is, is gen, generally introduced as, as a typology system. It, it essentially says that there are nine sort of archetypes for human character structure. And, and these nine archetypes of human character structure show us our sort of, uh, our, our instinctive compulsions, our, our emotional um, sort of passions or, or, or coping mechanisms, and, and our mental fixations or, or the places where we get stuck in our head. And when you can sort of look at this from your the, 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 what, what is called the intelligence centers in the Enneagram, from your body, from your heart, and from your mind, and begin to integrate these three disconnected centers, you begin to have a sense of who you really are in terms of your, you know, if you want to borrow Thomas Merton's language, true self or your essential nature. And, and so I've taken these before. I've I've kind of come to term that I'm probably a, a, a nine on the scale. I my my uh, I tend to like to avoid <laughs> when there's conflicts so on the negative side. So uh, what, what, once I've discovered that, what what might be next in terms of uh, working toward uh, spiritual discovery? Sure. So so if if you are in fact dominant in type nine, um, some of the teachers out there would call the, 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 the folks who are dominant in type nine the mediator or the peacemaker. Um, in, in the old days, um, the Jesuits um, and Richard War used to say, this is the need to avoid. Um, if we were to, to, to sort of break down type nine, we would, would start with, with what's called the childhood wound. Now, I, I don't like that language because I don't think your parent or parents wounded you. I, I think your, your childhood wound or the original wound of your Enneagram type is essentially the confirmation bias that you use to tell yourself that this is how you're going to get by in life. Mm -hmm. And so your childhood may have been marked by not a, uh, a, 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 an overlooking of you or your needs, but this sort of innate minimizing of your needs as a way of, of, of centralizing the needs of others in your, your holding environment. And, and as you began to minimize your needs, you began to suppress your needs. And as you began to suppress your needs, you began to hide them from yourself. And hiding them from yourself was, was a pretty good tactic as a, as a little boy because what that allowed you to do was to really understand other people and their needs. And, and so nines then become really incredible arbitrators, mediators, referees. In fact, nines understand every position. And in fact, it's a stressor for a nine to have to take a position even if they're called in to be an arbitrator or a mediator. Well, the, 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 the nine grows up with this, and, and what the nine does is begins to forget themselves. And so they say traditionally that the passion of the nine is sloth. Well, it's not that, that nines are, are, are lazy. 
It's just the self-forgetting of what needs to be done for the nine by the nine is always sort of bookmarked in this mental sort of place of, of rumination. And, and so for nines, the, the real hard work here is to, first of all, just reconnect with yourself, starting with your body, reconnecting with your body and, and showing up there. Secondly, the, the, the hard work for the nine is, is to start to, to, to make conscious all the things that they've forgotten to do specifically for themselves, the things that they're putting off, the things that they're not forgetting because it's, it's there, it's bookmarked there, but the things that they don't take the initiative to sort of engage. And, and then third, like the, the, the real, I think the real spiritual work for the nine is to actually then engage stillness, not as an opting out of stillness, but a sort of showing up in the presence of being still and letting everybody else work their drama out while you bring forward compassion and love for these people, patience and acceptance for the folks that you care for, and, and really sort of ascribing of your strength to help them find what's true in them that helps them sort of arbitrate, mediate, and reconcile what's, what's off. If you are just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Christopher Hewitts. Uh, he is the author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. This book came out uh, in 2017. Oddly enough, Presbyterians uh, are, are in love with Myers-Briggs. In fact, I had to take that uh, when I first became uh, a minister. There was a, a required deal, that, we, and everybody knows their Myers-Briggs initials and, and all of that kind of thing. So tell me a little bit about the difference between the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs in terms of practicality, I guess. And uh, what is uh, special about the Enneagram for you? Sure. So, so the Myers-Briggs is, is, is actually a, a helpful tool to sort of get to the, to get to the building blocks of, of your temperament. And, and one of the things that, that, that I think is, is, is accurate about your Myers-Briggs um, sort of results is that those may change over time. That, um, you know, a lot of that may be phase of life. A lot of that may be maturity. You know, um, I, I've, I've heard, and, and, I, and I think this is probably true, that the older you get, the more you trend towards the introversion spectrum of the Myers-Briggs. So if, if temperament is, is simply sort of, let's say, the rib cage of your, of your soul, and, you know, that grows, um, your bones decay, my sense is, is, is it's holding something that's essential to your sense of self. And, and I think the Enneagram really is this, the a snapshot of of your your innate and your unique gift what it is that you're born to bring forward in the world and um and i and i think that doesn't change i i think what you do is you get to sort of excavate the essence of that by doing work with the enneagram to bring that gift forward because when you can connect within it when you, when you can recognize it when you can can live out of it then then the world becomes a better place we all benefit we all benefit from that so you talked about in the book uh, a couple of times uh, the why of the type. Uh, so it's, it's one thing perhaps to say, okay, I think this is my Enneagram type. I've done some study on it. I, I've, I've read this over and I'm, I'm fairly self-aware. I'm not trying to be something I'm not or whatever, but we find out the type that we might be. And then, and then the question is the why of the type. And is that looking uh, really at, at the stories of our lives or tell me about that part? Okay, so I so so fundamentally, this is actually what I believe about the Enneagram and, and, and really the Enneagram of personality, mm -hmm. that it exposes to us our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Now, like I said, my, my sense is this, that you're born you're born with your type. And, and, and I believe that you'll likely die that same type. I, I know that there's a couple of folks out there who are theorizing that maybe in the path to enlightenment, we, 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 we move from type to type. But, but here's the thing, the, 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 the being born as the gift that you're supposed to bring forward, being born into your essential nature, your true self, tells you something about the, the possibility of your story. And I think what the Enneagram becomes in is this compassionate sketch, this sacred map of, of where that can become. So like I said, the so-called childhood wounds, I just think are the confirmation bias that we use to tell ourselves um, that it's okay to cope with our pains in the way that we do. And if that's true, 
then what happens is patterns begin to emerge. And, and so I do a lot of work around childhood patterns, around object relations theory, uh, around how we relate to our nurturing and or our, our protective caregiver or caregivers and, and, and what that does to our sense of self. And I think if you can look at your life, honestly, I think if you can look at the sort of touch points that, 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 that shaped you, that defined you, that became sort of the, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but let's say it the, like this, like the sort of early food that became the addiction to what your soul now feeds off of, then watching the why behind the what really helps actually invite us into transformation or, or, or real honest renewal. Yeah, we can look at the, the patterns that we've had in coping throughout life. Well, it's kind of the go-to way. A conflict happens or whatever happens, and I, and I go to my kind of a type that I have, and that's the way I've just generally dealt with all problems. Uh, and, and often that's unconscious. So the more I'm conscious about it, the more I can make a choice as if that's really the way I want to go about it or, or want to go about it perhaps another way. Um, is that right? I, that's exactly right because because first of all what we're we're having to do is 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 we're having to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are uh -huh. and, and look this is one of the saddest things that most of us don't know that we don't know who we are and and so to be able to sort of self observe to be able to align perception with reality actually gets us started on the sort of removing the scaffolding that we built up around the projection of our own ego mythology these lies that we've told ourselves about who we want to be, who we think we should be, who we wish we were. So yeah, you're, you're right. Like moving that, um, moving these sort of self-protection impulses from our, our unconscious into our subconscious and then really working in our subconscious with, with the ways that we've, we've suffered and how we cause some of our own suffering into our conscious minds is also part of the, the, the work here that, that the Enneagram invites us into. I like what you just said. We don't know that we don't know who we are. There we go. Hey, uh, Christopher Huritz is my guest. Uh, he's the author of The Sacred Enneagram, uh, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Now, is this something that should be done? You, you are uh, a, a leader in spiritual growth. Your website, again, is gravitycenter.com. Tell me about how what happens when uh, someone meets with you or, or meets with others about uh, exploring uh, this type and exploring what's behind it. Sure. So, 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 so the Enneagram work that, that I do through Gravity is, is really just a, a, a part of what we're up to. My wife does a lot of spiritual direction. She was trained by the Jesuits at Creighton University in the contemplative evocative method of, of spiritual direction. We do a lot of retreats, introducing people to the historic Christian contemplative tradition. Um, and, 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 and really with, if you're nuanced enough to pick up on it, really with sort of an Ignatian spirituality accent. But if you were to, to join us on, a, on an Enneagram workshop or if we were to do some one-on-one -on -one Enneagram work, really what I, I, I try to help people do is, is first of all, just come to terms with the basic fear of their type, the ways that we, we continue to believe the, the, the lie of our basic fear and the malformation of what this fear becomes as it becomes a, a, a sort of scarier monster when we give it power. We also do a lot of work with aligning Enneagram types and, and contemplative prayer postures. And so in our nonprofit, we, we try to frame contemplative spirituality uh, around three ways we approach it, either through solitude, silence, or stillness. And I actually think solitude, silence, and stillness align with the three centers of the, the Enneagram's intelligence centers. And then finally, we, we, we really try to align a mindfulness intention with each of the types. And uh, when we do this, there's, there's actually, I think, a different way of looking at the Enneagram. And like one of my teachers says, this is less about nine types or nine kinds of people and more about nine paths to God. And I think really that's where this can become a, a sacred map to our soul. Well, let me push back on the God question. Um, what what about people who uh, question whether God is real or not, or, 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 or are not necessarily spiritual, or probably aren't going to do prayer 
Um, what would uh, does in any in the Enneagram isn't necessarily Christian, right? I mean, it goes uh, before before Christianity in some respects. I think I think in your book you talked about uh, perhaps I don't know if it's known or not, but perhaps it can go way back into variety of philosophical traditions. So does, uh, what about for, say, folks who might not be Christian or not spiritual, as they might identify it that way, how, how can the Enneagram be helpful there? Sure. Well, so so through our, our, our nonprofit, we're, we're really only working with about 60%. Um, 60% of the folks that we're working with are, are really um, only only Protestant or Catholic, and, and even a lot of them are sort of on their way out of their, their faith communities or traditions. My sense is this, all of us have this existential thirst or this, this hunger for the beyond. That's why I, I think when we sit across somebody at the table, there, there's something deeply spiritual, even about sharing a meal. Well, well, we see that, of course, show up in every sacred text. In most of the world's great religions, uh, uh, the, the consistent metaphor for paradise is a banquet. So I, I don't know that like what we mean by spiritual um, has to sort of be sort of ethereal other than it, the, 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 the mundane, human, ordinary things that we do every day. And in that case, my sense is all of us have to tend to our spirituality, whatever that is. So when we talk about spirituality, we're talking uh, about how we relate to that part of ourselves, irregardless of, of a faith community or a faith tradition. And, and so mindfulness, we know that. Meditation practices, we know that. Body work, we know that. But that translates across every sort of uh, spiritual community, or even sort of wisdom tradition. And I think that Enneagram can connect with anyone on almost any of those levels, actually. All right. And let me put it then another way. Is there, uh, I'm seeing more and more uh, a conversation about the Enneagram within Christian circles, and I'm wondering if there's a resistance to it from some kinds of Christians, or uh, what, what do you make of that? Is there acceptance among uh uh, Christian uh, orthodoxy or whatever as well. Yeah. So when I, when I first came across this, actually, I was, was maybe a little less, uh, comfortable with some of the, the interspiritual invitations for applying and, and working with the Enneagram. In fact, when I first saw the drawing, it was like, it weirded me out. Like it was like super evil, like two pentagrams having sex. And I was like, uh, not allowed to, to learn about this. Um, but you're right. Like oh, over the last few years, um, this is becoming more sort of user friendly within within Christian communities and, and within a historic Christian context. However, there's there's still a lot of pushback. There's still a lot of questions. There's still a lot of concern. You know, the the history of this is a is a little fuzzy, and you know that creates some some um, you know a little bit of worry for a certain kind of person. However, I, I do think in the evolution of our human consciousness, and especially in sort of the, the beginning to consent to mystery that some Christian communities are, are, are finally making room for, um, this, this, this teaching does have a lot of use. And, and the use in it is, is that it, it shows us observable patterns that, that I, I think, you know, this isn't scientifically proven, but these observable patterns that it exposes, that it shows us, actually sort of help us see ourselves sort of from, a, I think, an objective point of view. And, 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 and you know, you, you see the snake that eats its own tail, the Ouroboros. It's like, that's a lot of our stories. We continue to return to the same thing that got us in trouble, that got us stuck, that got us hurt, that causes our own suffering. And we keep praying for help. We keep praying for forgiveness. We keep asking God to... To, to take these things away from us. Well, like I said, if you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. And in fact, I wonder if some of the, the ways that, that the divine may even be able to answer those prayers are simply allowing us to recognize our own patterns, to make peace with those patterns, and, and, and find a sense of humor about them. Well, there's also a sense of grace uh, about it, as I, I read your book, of uh, really kind of the point of, of discovering that one is loved, <laughs> one, you know, is, is, is accepted, one is okay, uh, deeper than the Enneagram uh, point of view, or, or whatever our wound is, or whatever our protection is, or whatever our mask is, that behind that we find ourselves actually whole, at one, at peace or um, in, in connection with the, with the world is, 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 is am I, am I close with that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
Uh, look, here's half of the problem of not knowing that we don't know who we are is the resistance to sort of wanting to stay asleep or, or not wanting to sort of be truthful about that. Mm-hmm. And, and so even accepting that and just relaxing into it, sort of finding that acceptance of self, I, I think for, for most of us is probably the first step on, on this journey of, of inner liberation. We want to stay asleep because sleep is safe. And it's hard to wake up. I mean, how many how many of us keep hitting the snooze every time it goes off on our morning alarm? It's like, you know, that's it's a pretty it's a pretty powerful metaphor if you think about it. Because even in the process of waking up, we're we're still groggy minded. We're still a little lethargic. Like some of us still sort of approach the day with apprehension. And and this is also the illusion that that enlightenment that that waking up um, is is easy work. Um, like I said earlier, my, my sense is, is some of the, the, the work required here in terms of what the Enneagram shows us is what it takes to excavate our essence. And, and man, if you're, you're going to unearth buried treasure, then you're going to get dirty, right? And, and, and that first few shovels full of the manure that's been the soil of, of your charisma, your gifts, your talents, your strengths is, 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 is pretty stinky stuff. Um, you get a little bit further down there, and, and now it's sort of the mulchy, mucky, really nasty stuff. You keep going, and, and the further you get down as you're excavating your essence, as you're unearthing the buried treasure of your essence, you get further and further down there. Some of this is fossilized. Some of this is, is stuff that we've never seen before. It's not easy. And, and, and so, you know, you, you, you have these folks who, who want to give themselves to their contemplative practice. You have these folks who, who really get super super excited about the Enneagram, which I, I think sadly on, on in, in most scenarios is simply just fueling their own narcissism. But if mm. you're going to give yourself to this work, it's, it's not easy. Uh, it is a series, just like any conversion, it is a series of minor deaths and it is learning how to die. And uh, everything, everything, everything in us will try to resist that. And then we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Uh, do I want to go through all that uh, hassle? I had a friend of mine who says he went to therapy and uh, every week he'd come back and, and he'd get mad at the therapist and he'd said, you dig this stuff up. It takes me all week to bury it back again. <laughs> of course, he's halfway joking because he, he ultimately he does want to dig deep, but it is very scary and troubling to go through all of that. Um, uh, but it is it is worth it because if we don't know who we are, we really can't be present in this world with all of its uh, beauty and tragedy at the same time. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, activism and, and how this might have. You started off really, uh, you're, you're t- talking about your story. You found the Enneagram when you were in, in Cambodia um, working on behalf of others. Uh, has your activism, has the Enneagram uh, shifted uh, that aspect for you? Well, so that's really one of the other ways that it, it provides accountability, because I, I'm afraid that a lot of us, and, and I'm afraid even myself, um, was guilty of this at times. I, I think a lot of the, the the social justice fights that we pick out in the world are, are simply proxy battles for the things that we should be working on in our own souls. And so it's easier hmm. to take care of a vulnerable person um, than it is to, to take care of your own vulnerabilities. And look, we were guilty of that. In my former work, um, you know, I, I, I have to admit it. I, I, I tried to do, and I thought I was doing a much better job of taking care of other people than I was myself. Well, you see what happens there is that catches up to you. See what happens there. There's, there's no credibility. There's no integrity in that, right? In, in the scripture, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we don't know how to love ourselves. In fact, most of us don't like ourselves very much. And so when we don't like ourselves very much, but we can see a need, we can see a vulnerability, we can, we can see something that we can contribute to, and we do give ourselves to that activism, that cause-driven effort. We think we like ourselves more because now we think we're a better person. So this is yet another one of those sort of subtle ironies and, and those sort of subtle graces of what the Enneagram sort of shows us is, hey, start, start at home, right? Open up your own soul and sort of see what's in there that you're not contending with it. You're not being honest with because most of the pain in the world is actually caused by that. And, and my wife, Lena, will say this frequently, and I think it's, it's so on point for such a simple statement, but she says, 
to the extent that we are transformed, the world will be transformed. How do you recommend someone to explore the Enneagram, say, uh, in, in a certain area? You mentioned that they could take an online test or be aware and just read about it or discover it or, or, or perhaps with another. But uh, are there, is there kind of a, what, a teaching unit around? Are you uh, on your own here? Or uh, are there, uh, is there a group of Enneagram professionals? Well, so, so, so just like anything that sort of, uh, anything that sort of congeals around sort of, uh, a sense of content or, or a following the Enneagram also sort of has its Yale and Harvard and, and, and Princeton and Oxford's. Um, and so the Enneagram world is, is, is broad. It's diverse. Um, there's, there's really great teachers and, and facilitators. There's really great sort of folks that do one-on-one. I just say get online and, and, and find out where you are. Um, I know that the uh, the Enneagram Association, the International Enneagram Association, has really good groups in Arizona. There's a really strong group in Seattle. Um, I know around San Francisco and in Portland, uh, in Denver, there's 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 um, some really really amazing work taking place. Um, but yeah, if you want to get involved, there's some fabulous resources out there. Um, there's, there's, there's workshops, you know, we, through gravity, we host workshops all over, not just all over North America, but literally all over the world. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's for you when you're ready for it. It it finds you right on time. And when you're willing to sort of take a hard look at what's inside, when you're willing to, to actually give yourself to the, to the practice of excavating essence. Um, I, like I said, I, I, I don't know a, a better support for the contemplative journey than, than the Enneagram. Christopher Heeritz has been my guest. He's the author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. And you can find out about his and his wife, uh, Felina's work at gravitycenter.com. That's gravitycenter.com. Chris, thank you uh, for this book. Thanks for spending time with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to, great to talk. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. 60 Minutes of Smart Progressive Spirit is now finishing its sixth year. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. It's heard weekly on about 10 stations. Thanks again to my guests, Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile, authors of The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, and Christopher Heeritz, author of The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. Be well. Be well.